During his first two years in office, President Donald Trump governed with a his way or the highway approach. That now changes. With Democrats holding power in the House, Trump must rethink his policies and his approach to his presidency, just as he's gearing up for his 2020 re-election bid. This is TikTok. I'm Dave Myers. Joining us today is Bloomberg's Washington Bureau Chief, Craig Gordon. Craig, thanks for joining us. Sure thing. So how did last night go? Uh, you're seeing a lot of headlines this morning about a split decision, and I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, if you're a Democrat, you could be happy that uh, the Democratic Party took control of the House of Representatives. They're probably looking at a net gain of maybe 27, 28 seats if you're still hanging out there. If you're a Republican, you're happy that uh, Republicans held on to the control of the United States Senate, probably padded their lead there mm-hmm. by a seat or two, and uh, and also had some pretty important uh, governor pickups uh, as well. So, you know, each side has something to crow about, uh, and we heard the, the president crow about it just a little bit just now. And last night, the Republican Party defied history to expand our Senate majority while significantly beating expectations in the House. So for the most part, all the pieces fell into place. So where were you surprised the most then? The two races that caught me off guard a little bit were the governor's races in Florida and Ohio. Down in Florida, you had Democrat Andrew Gillum, uh, kind of an attractive political newcomer. African-American would have been a historic uh, win for him in Florida. But he got beat by uh, Donald Trump's hand-chosen candidate there, a guy named Ron DeSantis. So Republicans hold the state house in Florida. Go on up to Ohio where Rich Cordray, from, who used to run the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, was the Democratic candidate running against Mike DeWine, a former senator who's had a lot of different state jobs in Ohio. DeWine kind of cleaned up the floor with him. It was not even a tough night for DeWine. Um, so why that's important. Um, you know, state houses matter in presidential politics. If you, there's a sort of a theory in politics that if you have, if you own the governor's uh, mansion in the state, it's about a plus three, gives their candidates there a little bit extra, extra help. They usually have a sort of a machine there. There's a little bit of extra money. Everybody knows that Florida and Ohio are the are one and one A mm-hmm. in states you got to win to get to the White House. So for the Republicans to hold both of those governorships, big, big, uh, and again, something to watch uh, as we go forward. So while not as sexy as a Senate race, gubernatorial races really mean a lot more because when we look forward to 2020, those states, as you point out, are, are going to be huge. Yes, and even in the governor's races, you have a little bit of a split decision because Democrats can take some comfort in that they won uh, both governor's races and Senate seats in the three states that put Donald Trump in the White House. So that's, of course, as we all remember, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Uh, they already had a Democratic governor in PA, picked up Wisconsin and Michigan. And again, those are the states that helped Donald Trump become the president by roughly 80,000 votes. We all remember that from 2016. Here again, having the governors there and again, uh, Democratic senators as well. It shows that Democrats can win in those really crucial states. People think of it as kind of like a blue crescent sort of along the, the Rust Belt there. Um, that That is has been in the past a firewall for Democratic presidential candidates. Barack Obama benefited from it greatly um, and Hillary Clinton did not. And that's why Donald Trump's in the White House. So so that's, you know, on the on the other side for Democrats to pick up those state houses was very, very big. Well, now the campaigning is done. The voting is done and it's time to govern. I think we know by now what the Democrats in the House are going to do. Investigation, investigation, investigation. But who will be leading those investigations and the other committees that they're now going to take power of? Yeah, sure. I'm going to give you three names to, to kind of keep an eye out for. Uh, the, the House Judiciary Committee is going to be a guy named Jerry Nadler from New York, been in Congress a long time. Um, judiciary is important because if there were to be an impeachment, and there is, as of right now, no plans for an impeachment, stress <laughs> that, underline that, but, uh, but Jerry Nadler's judiciary 
Judiciary Committee would sort of be the place that would uh, would be hatched. Then you've got Elijah Cummings over there in House Oversight, uh, again, a, a longtime uh, African-American uh, uh, member from state of Maryland, feisty fella, um, mixed it up pretty good with the Republicans that ran that committee in the recent years during the Benghazi hearings and the various other things. Someone to watch. And then a second very, very powerful African-American member, Maxine Waters uh, from California, will be running the House Financial Services. And that is where, again, you can have sort of subpoenas of banks and subpoenas of all kinds of things and also some of the, the rulemaking that the, um, the financial services community would not much like. Maxine Waters, again, a very feisty uh, member who has, who has said basically that she's planning to look really hard at the banks and the mortgage companies that, that caused the housing crisis, caused the 2008 meltdown, and really kind of get in there and uh, ask them a lot of tough questions that they don't want to answer. So that is, those are the three you know people we'll be watching the most closely uh, that could really, uh, really mix it up with the Republicans. House Majority Whip Steny Hoyer laid out a Democratic agenda that might look like infrastructure, education, skills training. Can we expect Donald Trump to help with that or prevent that? Hopefully we can all work together next year to continue delivering for the American people, including on economic growth, infrastructure, trade, lowering the cost of prescription drugs. These are some of the things that the Democrats do want to work on. I think the I think really the only place where you might see some true cooperation would be in infrastructure. But I, I will caution, um, I, I kind of feel like this is a Lucy with the football uh, moment here. We all kind of fell for this right after Trump got elected. People may remember that uh, Trump had talked about working with uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leaders in the House and Senate, to, to work on a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, roads, bridges, broadband, schools, the whole thing, who wouldn't love it and the jobs that it would bring, and they never could really get it off the ground. They had some meetings that seemed like they were making some progress, and then it all fell apart. So I, I will say it, it is really, really hard to overstate the, the toxic atmosphere in Washington right now. I just don't see either party wanting to give the other party anything that mm-hmm. even approach, you know, looks at all like a victory, like an infrastructure bill or anything like that. Um, so that's really hard for me to picture. Now, um, you know, Miracles can happen, um, and there is a lot of common ground on the issue. There's there's actually not that much politics around an infrastructure bill. It's just about building stuff and spending a lot of government money and um, giving a lot of people jobs, but uh, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. So that's the House. Um, but let's talk about the Senate, because in the end, it wasn't a bad night at all for the president when it comes there. Yeah, sure. Look, they um, they already had the majority um, in the Senate, and they probably, as we say, added added a seat or two there, possibly as the as results sort of shake out. Why the Senate is so important is really just one word, and that word is judges. Um, conservatives in this country about 20 years ago sort of hatched a, a plan. Um, it's either genius or diabolical, depending on where you sit on the partisan spectrum. To, to use the Senate um, confirmation power for judges to really create an entire generation of sort of conservative judges at every level of the federal courts, the district courts, the appeals courts, and obviously all the way up to the Supreme Court. We saw this, um, you know, in full flower with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court in recent weeks and, you know, holding the Senate. The House doesn't do anything with judicial appointments. It's only the Senate. Senate also only does treaties. The House doesn't do those either. But really, it's the judges. And, you know, I think a lot of people always wonder why evangelical um, conservatives, particularly religious people um, are so fond of Donald Trump, given his <clears throat> rather checkered personal history. And the answer is judges. Um, they they see him as a way to carry out this very long-term plan they've had to really cement a sort of conservative 
jurisprudence on the federal branch for as far as the eye can see. And with with this tight hold on the Senate and even a little bit of a few extra votes, they they will be able to carry out that plan. People remember in the Kavanaugh hearing, we all had to wait for Susan Collins to come to the podium to tell us how she was going to vote. If they have two or three extra votes, Susan Collins just isn't that important anymore. Lisa mm-hmm. Murkowski, any individual Republican senator can't really throw sand in the gears because they've got that extra padding of, of those extra seats. And, and that's, um, for them, very, very good news. So that's something that will help um, with the base. But what can he do now with you know a split Congress when it comes to other domestic policies and also foreign policies? Uh, in terms of foreign policy, it's interesting because the House, again, has almost no say in that. The one place where the House will, will get to weigh in uh, foreign policy, if you want to call it that, is the new NAFTA. I, I'm, I, I can't bring myself to call it USMCA <laughs> or whatever. I call it the new NAFTA. Um, Donald Trump doesn't like it. Come and find me. But the that is actually a place where Democrats, I, I think Democrats probably will ultimately support that and that probably will go through. But they do have an opportunity to go back to Trump and say, OK, but you got to change a few things to get our votes. Um, and that's obviously a hugely important sort of policy for the country, how we relate to Mexico and Canada. So that's one place where Democrats have some leverage, even though NAFTA is sort of a treaty, it, it actually has to come through the House for reasons that are too complicated to explain. So that's one little place where Nancy Pelosi um, and her crew have some have some leverage. But on most of most foreign policy issues, Iran sanctions, a China trade deal, a China trade war, Democrats really don't have any, you know, any say in that or, or any vote in that. And so in that way, he's he's pretty unfettered. Um, I also think the other place where Trump has a lot of leeway is on immigration. Um, it's been pretty well established mm-hmm. by the courts that presidents get to decide who comes in and out of the country, that there's a lot of power vested in a president to make those decisions about borders and crossings and all that stuff. I think something to watch is whether we real, you know, whether the United States really will send 15,000 troops to the border. That seemed a lot more like a campaign slogan than an actual military plan. Um, uh, Trump was asked about it at a press conference and uh, dodged and weaved on that one a little bit. But as far as the, you know, what most people think of as a pretty hard line immigration policy, keeping out um, illegal immigrants, Trump is pretty free to continue that, um, which is obviously very popular with his base. So you've got foreign policy he can move forward on. You've got immigration that he can possibly move forward on. He's got the judges that he can possibly move forward on. Those all sound very appealing to his base because now he's running for re-election, isn't he? Yeah, um, the you know if if anyone who watched the press conference um, he held right after the election, you know the entire last two minutes of it were essentially his campaign speech. I do have the right to fight back because I'm treated very unfairly. So I do fight back, and I'm fighting back. Not for me. I'm fighting back for the people of this country. He talked a lot about the things he's accomplished, uh, you know, and some of the immigration things. And uh, obviously the U.S. economy is doing pretty well right now. Jobs are plentiful. Wages are starting to tick up a little bit. Of course, he gets to take some credit for that, whether he had anything to do with it or not. Um, And he he kind of wrapped it all up in in the idea that he thinks Americans want to be secure, um, secure from overseas threats, secure at the borders. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that was his 2016 campaign speech, and it's also his 2020 campaign speech. So I, I mean, Donald Trump's reelection campaign essentially started today, and he laid out in those few f- closing minutes of that very long news conference the the very broad themes that that uh, that he will run on. You just mentioned a little while ago how important it was that Ohio and Florida went to the Republicans, but states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, they went to the Democrats. Because when I look at the, the results from last night, and I look at states like Ohio, and I look at states like Florida, there's a lot of red in those states, and there's just small pockets of blue. I mean, the pockets are pretty big, but they're, they're, like, they're not very big when it comes to the total square footage of those states. What does that say about 2020? 
Yeah, I, I, I actually think that Donald Trump, um, I believe Donald Trump's base is exactly the same shape and roughly the same size as it was on the morning of November 7th, 2016. So what do I mean by that? Um, Trump's voters love him. He has added nobody to that base. I do think there are some uh, people, and I would say women in particular, that have that have left Trump, and I think that's what the results last night showed us, um, the, the generic ballot numbers. Uh, for women, uh, Trump got about 41 percent of women in 2016. The, the pre-election numbers were more like 31 percent of women um, in 2018. So I, I would say that while Trump had a had a pretty good night last night, all things considered, um, for the first midterm election of a presidency, always a tough um, thing for the party in power. I, I don't think he has done much to expand his outreach, um, and I'm not sure that the size of his base right now, minus the people who have left him, particularly women, um, is enough to get him back to the White House. And I think the very, very interesting question for Donald Trump between now and 2020 is whether he can find any way to add to add to those numbers. Um, you know, he, he, ran, he ran a scorched earth base strategy in holding the Senate, and it's okay because the Senate map was mostly... Trump states. People Ooh. recall 10 of the states Democrats had to defend were carried by Donald Trump. That's why Heidi Heitkamp lost in North Dakota. That's why Claire McCaskill lost in Missouri. Uh, that's why Joe Donnelly lost in Indiana. Those are all states that Donald Trump carried in 2016 as president, and they, as Democrats, had to try to convince people, I know you voted for Trump in 2016, but you got to stick with us. The Democrats in 2018 is a very, very, very tough sell. But there's not really, really any states that he sort of added. You know, even Florida and Ohio, he carried in the presidential. And while those are, those are very good results for him, and he should be happy about that, and I'm sure he is, it's not like there's a lot of places where you could say, ah, that's a state where he, he gained ground. Uh, that's a voting group where he added voters. So as he heads into 2020, you know, I always sort of say presidential elections are really just a giant math problem. You have to get to 270 electoral votes and you have all the states to pick from and you have to win the ones you do and uh, limit your losses in the ones you don't. And I think Donald Trump's math problem heading into 2020 is much trickier than his math problem heading into 2016. His math problem in 2016 was pretty tough. He just managed to, to kind of beat the odds with those uh, key three states we talked about earlier. Craig Gordon, thank you. Sure thing. Make sure to follow Craig on Twitter. He's at DCraigGordon. That's a TikTok for today. Thanks for listening, and please head on over to iTunes and let us know what you think. I'm Dave Myers. You can follow me on Twitter at David F. Myers, and you can get all your updates 24-7 at TikTok.